and welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Trianow and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap. Check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. All right, my guest this week is Patrick Sweeney, an Olympic athlete turned technology entrepreneur turned full-time adventurer. Patrick chases adventure for a living, propelled by a passion to help others do the same through corporate speaking engagements and network television appearances, plus an upcoming book in 2017. Patrick grew up a working-class Irish kid outside of Boston and was shaped by a dramatic life experience he'll share in our talk. He finished second in the 1996 Olympic trials rowing the single skull and won international races from Canada to Norway. After attending a top business school, he built multiple groundbreaking technology companies, earned six patents, wrote two award-winning books, and appeared on media outlets from CNN to Bloomberg, CNBC, and the New York Times. One day, though, while working the 80-hour weeks and living the intense life of an entrepreneurial leader, Patrick got a wake-up call in the form of a life-threatening illness. When he recovered, he took his first steps toward finding his own adventurer again, unlocking a passion and energy for life all too often lost in the pursuit of material wealth. Today, Patrick's focus is on breaking world records and embracing every day as if it were his last. In February 2015, he became the first person to bike the Everest base camp in Nepal and has now become the first to attempt cycling the seven summits. His mission is to help millions around the world find their adventurer within, and our second segment today focuses on the process of overcoming fear that is central to achieving that or any goal in life or in business. Now, this conversation is a fascinating one about breaking through what he calls the fear frontier, covering ground from startups to parenting, the limiting functions of our lizard brains, and the journey to find the genius we all have at the intersection of our passion and our vocation. I think you're really going to like it. All right, so before we get started here, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Overcast, or Pocket Cast, and please consider giving us a quick five-star review on iTunes. Uh, those are really building up for us, and it is a huge help in getting the word uh, out. So if you've already done that for us, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a huge help. Now, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Here now is my conversation with Patrick Sweeney. All right, so Patrick Sweeney, welcome to uh, welcome to Boston. Have you been in town a couple of days? Or uh... been in town all week. Got to see opening day with the Red Sox oh, that's with fun. my mom. Super Family fun. tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're you are one of the more fascinating people that I've known. I have to say, Patrick, and I'm really looking forward to. Uh, hearing your story and letting, sharing it with other people as well. Well, Mike, that doesn't say a lot for the company you keep, but, <laughs> but thank you for the compliment. So where did you grow up? Uh, born and raised in Belmont, Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. So just a standard, you know, uh, white collar. kid from Belmont. Yeah. <laughs> white, white Irish kid. You had, you had two choices, right? The white Irish kid and the white Italian kid. That's it. <laughs> there That's was, it. Everyone was either a cop or a priest, it seemed. Yeah. And but but a good happy. Did you have brothers and sisters growing up? Older brother Sean, yeah. right? Not not surprisingly. And uh, <laughs> interesting thing about the Irish, and I've got three kids 
Shannon, PJ, and Declan. So, you know, we like your, no your Italian side. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seamus never came along. Right. Uh, and um, it, was, it was funny because we eventually moved from Belmont when my dad, uh, my dad got a job. And we went to the Midwest for a couple of years. And so my poor brother, with that Irish spelling of S-E-A-N, was seen the whole, the whole oh, time right, right. growing up because, mm-hmm. you know, it was Midwestern, uh, you know, cornbread. Now, what was the dynamic between you two? Did you guys like beat on each other? Were you competitive? Was it was it uh, was that a part of of your household? It was absolutely. I mean, we yeah. we we fought like cats and dogs. In fact, uh, we got in a fight on my fortieth birthday. So, <laughs> <laughs> so some things some things absolutely never change. Mike, growing up blue collar in Boston, completely unremarkable. So, first generation Irish immigrant parents. My dad never went to college. We didn't have any money. We lived in the duplex downstairs from my grandparents. My grandparents owned the house. We lived downstairs. And I'd just get beat up on a regular basis and, and completely you know, overlooked by any pretty girls or cool guys. So, <laughs> right. Where'd you go to college? So I went to undergrad at University of New Hampshire. Yeah. I went, actually went, uh, because I was a big cross-country skier, went to high school in Keene, New Hampshire. Uh, my, dad, my dad was one of the first guys Ross Perot hired in the late 60s. And he was a card uh, data card punch operator. So he'd input data, and he did a couple good things, and then started uh, moving up the ladder at EDS. And uh, my mom said, you know, uh, you've got to stop moving around because he was doing data centers in different cities. So we moved to Michigan and Chicago and California to do a data center. And about every year, he'd leave to start a new one, and then six months later, we'd follow him. And my mom finally said, had enough of that. You know, it's either your family or your job, which, which I always think... You know, um, it kind of put an upper limit on him that I think, you know, he might have regretted yeah. uh, later on. But long story short, he found a data center in Keene, New Hampshire, and and worked there the rest of his career. So we went to to high school in Keene, and then undergrad at UNH. And and was that had your brother gone to a, a college as well? He uh, went to the Navy. Yeah. So. Uh, UNH was the only school I got into. I thought I'd get into Dartmouth because we had some friends, uh, you know, who were connected there and wasn't even close, right? And so uh, UNH was a top 10 party school at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and they had a Division One ski program, and I won the state championship for cross-country skiing at, at Keene High. And uh, so I went with the idea of, of athletics and, and partying, and then, you know, if I had to, I'd take some courses. I stopped skiing the second year when the technique changed, and I took up rowing, which is a club sport. And I said to the coach at, at one point, I said, Coach, and I was doing really well just because I was fit from skiing mostly. I said, Coach, I don't think I can, I can make the, the race this weekend. We had to leave on a Thursday. I, I've got this really important thing to do. He sat me down. He grabbed me by the shoulders, looked me right in the eyes, and he said, Sweeney, you got four years of athletic eligibility. You got the rest of your life to go back and get a degree. I said, okay, coach. Wow. <laughs> Let's load up the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. Um, what did you do after school? So I spent five years training for the Olympics. I was a single sculler and finished second in the 1996 Olympic trials and raced the World Cup and, you know, was somewhere near the top 10 for a couple of years and uh, uh, did really well and really, really had an amazing experience. You know, um, like... Everyone on the planet, I read Boys in the Boat and mm-hmm. have a great, uh, gave me a, a deeper appreciation for that sport in particular. And, and you know, one of the things that strikes me about it is just the degree of, of, you know, for lack of a better term, mental toughness required to succeed in that sport in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say this as a, you know, Division One football player, but it's yeah. different, you know. Um, 
Where did, where did that come from in you, do you think, the mental toughness aspect of it? I, I think a lot of it might came from the fact that I always wanted to prove myself. I, had, I was always fighting. Right, the Boston Irish kid that was always getting beat up. I was, I was constant. Everything was a fight, and I was always ready to fight. I was preconditioned for a fight from my childhood. I, I strongly believe that, and and that helped me athletically because if you learn to channel anger, it's a it's a tremendous incentive, but it also hurt me, I think, quite a bit in in life and in business later on. When you came to the end of that, you know, part of your journey. How did you know, and uh, what did you do? So um, it's it's interesting because I put if if outliers had been out in 1996, I might not have quit because <laughs> yeah. I, I had about 5,000 hours under my belt and uh, and uh, was was second in the Olympic trials. And I thought, you know, a lot of people are going for four more years, and I thought I had maximized my potential, and and I, I still believe that I did. So then I figured, well. No one's going to hire a dumb jock, so I better go back to uh, I better go back to grad school. So I only I applied to the number four and number five MBA program, and uh, number ten was my safety, and uh, that was Dartmouth, and I still didn't get in. <laughs> Got into the fucking Hanover. <laughs> I know. I don't know what it is, what and hell? I wrote up there. There's right? nothing. Up, there's nothing going From on. From New Hampshire, I wrote up there. Those I guys. thought I, I thought I was sliding in. Oh. Yeah, no shit. So, uh, so uh, I didn't want to come back to Cambridge and um, uh, went down to UVA. They had a brand new program there and a, a $72 million bil- building. And they said, look, we, we do a dumb jock entry every year in a Navy SEAL. So you got the dumb jock entry if you want it. I'm like, all right, excellent. <laughs> and we <laughs> already got the, the SEAL. We already got the SEAL. This is the place for me. <laughs> I came here to chew gum and kick ass and I'm all out of gum. That's it. Um, that's it. <laughs> Apologizing to the audience. I just put in a cough drop because I've been sick for a couple of days here and um just bear with me on the. Uh, and I'm incredibly paranoid sitting across from. Uh, we have a we have a we have a <laughs> two inch thick lucite wall between us, uh, like a bank teller. And I'm um, and I'm wearing a white hazmat suit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Breaking Bad outtake here. <laughs> All right, so um, UVA, great school. I mean, super yeah. cool campus, great great tradition there, right? Yeah. Um, and and uh, also a great rowing place too. Your relationship with the sport, did, did you stay close to it? Are you bitter about it, or like do you? What, what you, it, it was a job for me, so it took me 10 years to want to get back on the water again, right? Because right? right. I was training six to eight hours a day. But at the same token, it taught me a level of focus and dedication that I, that I never had. So at UNH, I graduated with a, barely graduated with a 2.4 GPA. Got out in four years, was pleased to, to get out at, at UVA, and my GPA was 3.9. So it was, a, it was a, and I attribute all of that to rowing. All right, so it's kind of hitting the reset button. Now you're a newly minted MBA from a credible place. As you thought about what you wanted to do to begin your professional career, you know, what was going through your mind? What, what did you want at the time you left business school? So I had one goal and one goal only, and that was to make 40 by 40. And I told everybody that. I wanted to make $40 million by the time I was 40 years old. Why? Fuck why? everything else. Why that? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, why, why wasn't it 30 by 30? I think I was too close to 30. <laughs> so I wanted to give myself a little runway. It, and it goes, back to, it goes back to really feeling like I needed to prove myself, yeah. and money was the best way to do it. And, and keep that score. Was a, way, way, a way to keep it was score. The only way to keep score. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I was, I was hanging out with people who thought like that, and, and, and that was my total, my sole motivation at that point. Got it. So what was your plan to get there? 
So I was into technology. I had, uh, you know, I had the first uh, Apple at UNH ever, and uh, I had a Commodore 64, and so I was, I was into technology long before it was cool. So I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing tech stuff. One of the guys who I used to row with worked for the largest real estate company in the world at the time, and he knew I was going back to grad school. And he said, come do, our in- come do your internship because we're doing data centers for people. People keep asking us for data centers, and we don't know the difference between a, a data center and a massage parlor. So, right. so he said, you know, come help us out with this because I used to crawl around my dad's data centers and go under the raised floor and play with punch. I can still read a punch card. I can, punch- too. If you had a punch card here. No, I can do that, too. <laughs> oh, come on. You can't I, No, do I that. swear to God. I, the, I, one, I, the one fucking party <laughs> trick I bring you're going to take away no, from me? No, I, I can. It's fun. As you were saying that, I was going to bring it up, but, like, my dad was part of that era as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that so that was it. So I went to work for Trammell Crow. They paid my um, uh, they paid my last year of of Darden, and uh, so I interned with them. What was your early, you know, career experience like as you were sort of entering the working world? You'd managed to avoid that. Now you were yeah. you know you know you were in your thirties so, or close to it. Yeah, right? yeah I was just I just turned thirty. Um, so what was that experience? What was that like? So. Um, I finally ran out of excuses for my wife. So first was the Olympics. We couldn't, <laughs> couldn't get married for the Olympics. And the next one was a uh, uh, was Darden. Can't get married while I'm at Darden. You can't get distracted. So literally a week after we graduated, we got married. So <laughs> she said, that's it. We're done. Yeah. And, uh, and I always think of a Frank Sinatra excuse because I was traveling a ton and, and dating a lot of people. And I was really upfront with my wife. And I said, look, I'm not ready to settle down. And she said, she said look, you got to decide. You know, I'm... I, I, I can't have this, you dating other people and, and everything else. She said, I just got to know if I'm wasting my time. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't commit. So I went to the World Cup, and I did it on sponsors' money. Normally, when I go over there, it's, it's just, you know, it's heaven for me. I go over, and I don't want to come back, and I spend a few weeks at the end. So I was about three-quarters of the way through the, the World Cup, and I couldn't wait to get home. And Frank Sinatra, God love him, says that when you're lonely being alone, it's because you're missing someone. And so I knew I was missing her, and she was the one, and I came back on bended knee, and we got back together. And so that's, that's the personal story. I know you didn't ask that, but if God help me if she listens to the podcast, <laughs> and, I, and I don't put that in. That is great, and, and, and that, a great piece of wisdom from, from Frank, too. From Frank? Um, well, that's a, that's wherever really, there's an opportunity to share that. That's really redundant, isn't it? You don't have to say great no, piece of wisdom from um, Frank. There you go. That's, that's, that's good insight. So I went to work with Crow, and then the data center movement was really taken off. So we did data centers for Microsoft, Computer Associates, uh, Bon, all these, all these people. And these guys were really good to me, and they gave me great leeway. And, and I, had all, you know, I had budget, and I had people working for me, and it was totally foreign to me. And then I realized, I can do this. And I had one of my good friends who was, started out selling, reselling Macs, started a data center, sold it to what is now NTT for $100 million in cash. He owned 97% of the company. And, uh, and I said, my God, if he can make $100 bucks, I can do this. So I, I told my wife, I said, look, I'm going to start a company. I got a great idea. It's going to be a secure data hosting company because banks and insurance companies and the government are going to want to put all their data on this thing called the Internet. So uh, she said, well, wait till we get a mortgage. I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, that house we're looking at, you need a real job to get a mortgage. She was working for, um, she was working for Computer Associates at the time, and, uh, and then she was a consultant for KPMG. 
So she said, uh, let's get the mortgage first. So the day after I got my mortgage, I went in to see my boss. And this is a sign of a great boss. So I went in and I said, I said, look, I'm leaving Crow. I want to give you my two weeks notice. If you need it to be a month, I understand. And he said, you know, who's, who's got you? Because we'll match whatever offer that they have out there. We want to keep you. And I said, that's, that's super nice. And I was petrified. I was literally shaken going in there because these guys were so nice to me. And, and I was scared to, to bring this forward. And, and, uh, and I said, look, I think I'm going to start my own gig. Here's my idea. Here's, you know, here's what I think I'm going to do. He said to me, I want to invest. And he went to his boss, and his boss said, I want to invest too. Wow. And they both invested, and, and, and we're still friends to this day. So. That's great. And they made money. And, and they made money. Yeah. God, God love them. It was, uh, so that, was, that, that first company was called Server Vault. So let's shift gears. So we flash forward. Now you're, you know, you've run a couple of successful companies. Um, you've had some nice exits. You've you know, made a good living. What happened in, in your life that um, changed your perspective? Just before I exited my second company, which was um, an RFID software company, things were going really well, and uh, and I was working 80 hours a week. And I was doing, this is in D.C., and just outside the Beltway in the, the, the tech area, and I was doing the networking. I was going to all these events and venture capital events and, and networking events, and so I was probably drinking six to eight cocktails every night, feeling guilty about it as a former athlete. So I'd get home at midnight, I'd wake up at 4.30 or 5 to go work out. And I was just living this destructive lifestyle. And at one point, I took, uh, I had a conference out in Vegas, and I took my dad with me. And, uh, and I didn't sleep for, for two days. And I came back and had this really odd pain and uh, in, in my arm, like a, like a torn muscle or something. And I went to the gym and I said, okay, well, shake it off. And then, and then started to get red and then it started to really hurt. So I figured I'd have to go to the doctors, went to Reston Hospital. And, and the th- you know, this could happen to anyone. You yeah. think it's just, a, it's just a, a torn muscle or pulled tendon or something like that. I go into Reston Hospital. They say, well, it looks like a staph infection. And uh, we're going to do some blood draws. But just keep an eye on it, and we'll give you some antibiotics. And I get a call that afternoon, and the the doctor says, or the nurse says, you got to come in and see the doctor this afternoon. I thought, oh, shit, that's not good. That's so, not good. It's no. not a call so, you want to get. So I, I went in, and, uh, and they said, you've got no white blood cells. You have no immune system. And we're going to give you this booster shot for white blood cells and see if it takes any effect. And it didn't. And they said, we have no idea what's going on. So... Um, I ended up going up to Hopkins, and they got me in there, and, and I was getting worse. And they took a Sharpie, and they draw on my arm where the, the redness was from the staph infection, and it kept creeping up. And they said, listen, if, if and I had intravenous uh, antivirals, antibacterials, and yeah. I had more, more tubes. Giving you the full Monty yeah, now. Yeah, I was getting, I looked like the space shuttle about to take off. And so, and it kept moving. And they said, look, if it, start, if it keeps moving, we're going to have to amputate your arm. Because if that goes into your brain, your, your heart, you're dead. Yeah. So um, the doctor comes in and he said, we haven't been able to figure out what's going on. Um, I want to ask you and your wife if your affairs are in order. <laughs> and I, I said, listen, I'm not Doogie Hauser, but to me, that's doctor speak for I'm fucked. Yeah. And, and they, said, uh, they said, well, you know, we think we can figure it out. Long story short, it ends up being a really rare form of leukemia. 
and they they found the doctor who found it. They got a treatment, and I started using a lot of the mental training that I had learned at the Olympic Training Center, and I had learned during the the time I was uh, training for the Olympics. This visualization, I kept visualizing these antibodies, these warriors coming out of my the center of my chest and going and fighting these things. And so, long story short, ten days later, I'm out of the hospital. They got to figure it out. White cells are starting to regenerate themselves. And I walked out of that hospital in Baltimore, and it's in the ghetto in Baltimore. It's in a terrible spot. It was a day like today. It was 40 degrees and rainy. And there's this leaf in the puddle, and it's, it's orange, and it's tinged with red along the edges. And I, I'm nearly crying. I look at my wife, and I said, God, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And, and you know, the, the 35 years prior to that, I would have went stumbling by, pissed yeah. off that it was raining out and inconvenienced that I missed two weeks of work. Right. Yeah. So my whole perspective changed because of that moment. If the you after that experience had to explain to the you before that experience mm-hmm. what he didn't understand about the world, about life, about, you know, what would you say? It's, it's so easy, Mike. The, the answer to that is, is so clear to me and it's so profound once you believe it. That, that it, it'll, if, if you listen and you believe it, it'll change your, your entire life. And that is that the world is a very friendly place. So I told you when I was in Belmont, everything was a fight. Everything was a fight through high school, through college. I was always a victim, right? And I was always ready for a fight. And then at one point I realized, well, what, why, do, why do I have to be ready for a fight? And one of my friends asked me that, and, and she said, you know, what, what is it that you're always fighting against? Because you're essentially fighting against yourself. And I was at a, a mountain bike race, and I was, had to pick someone up at the airport. And I got out of the, done with the race, I'm all muddy, and I decided to jump in this lake. And it's, it's uh, April, or March or April, and, and it was a Boy Scout camp. And I dove in the lake, and I thought, well, if someone says something to me, I know exactly what the fuck I'm going to tell them, right? I'll, I'm going to explain why I could be swimming, because if someone comes and yells at me and says there's no lifeguards, there's you know, no safety stuff set up, and then I thought to myself, why the hell wouldn't the Swedish bikini team be waiting for me with a nice warmed-up towel and a, you know, <laughs> and, and, a, and a hot cup of coffee? So why, why am I always... And, and it was that moment that I thought, I'm, I'm always ready for a fight. I'm always looking to fight. And I trained, I, I did uh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu with Hoist Gracie for about five years as well. And, and it's a martial art that started the Ultimate Fighting um, franchise. And, and I was always ready for a fight. And so once I realized the world is a very friendly place and, and every moment I could learn from it, I just, my luck completely changed, if you want to call it that. Hmm. And, and people say that I'm you know, the luckiest guy they know. So now you got to sort of rebuild your life around this new understanding, and what did you do first? The, the first thing I did was try to decide what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I enjoyed being an entrepreneur, but I look back and I realize the only thing I really enjoyed was, was the challenge and the team. You know, I didn't enjoy, and I had raised a lot of venture capital, and I had done a bunch of acquisitions, and I said I didn't really enjoy the, the finance part, and I, I wasn't crazy about the... Um, the sales part, and, and I remembered this class that we took with a professor named Jim Clausen, who's a UVA professor um, 
of psychology or something. And it was called career management, the second year class at Darden. And we did every test you could possibly imagine, the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, the Strength Finders. And at the end, he's going to look into his crystal ball and tell us all the ultimate job for all of us. Sure. And so, uh, so we're at the end of whatever it was, you know, the eight weeks or something. And he's going through the thing. He looks at our buddy, you know, my buddy Warren Esty, Big Daddy. And he said, oh, okay, we got this investment banking in healthcare." And right, so now the guy runs uh, Deutsche Bank's whole investment banking healthcare practice, and he's a stud at it. And he looks at my other buddy, and, and he says, okay, consulting, you know, pick one, McKenzie, Accenture, whatever. Now the guy's running the tech practice at, at Accenture, right? So he's nailing it in, in retrospect. He looks at me, he's like, Sweeney. <laughs> and I, I, everyone kind of looks at him. He said, this is an interesting one. It's the first time I've seen this. You should be park ranger. (laughs) And so everybody busts up laughing. But in retrospect, what I'm doing now is a full-time adventure. And if you look at that, that's a glorified park ranger. So I I give him credit. He was right. Yeah. You know, I I have this theory that um, we have all these things that cause pain in our lives, you know, transient pain. But in the long run, the real pain in your life is, is caused by distance from the truth. Yeah. Of, of, yourself, who you are, what you need, a relationship, a business, true in, in every facet of life. And, and um, you know, it sounds like your act one was really disconnected from the truth of who you were and what you needed. Incredibly. And, and, Incredibly. You, and then you had this life experience, which was you know, obviously, you, you know, threatened your life, but, yeah. but it enabled you to connect back to that truth, right? Um, it, it, it didn't enable me, Mike, to connect back to that truth. It brought the realization that I was nowhere near the truth. Yeah. Right, because yeah. I, I had I think I grew up not even not even knowing what that truth was. Yeah, sure. You know, and and I was lucky enough to be in this organization called Young Presidents Organization. Sure, y- YPO. YPO. Yeah. And um, and my forum has been you know absolutely incredible in in supporting me. So we bring in a resource to facilitate uh, our meetings. One of the resources we brought in was a woman named Diana Chapman. She wrote a book called Conscious Leadership just a year or two ago. And Diana came in, and she started to lead us on this process of, of finding our truth, as you'd refer to it. And it's what, you know, I'll, I'll call finding your genius. And, and to me, that means finding something you're incredibly passionate about and combining it with your vocation. And when you find your passion and you can combine it with your vocation, then you're living in your genius. Yeah. She'd say that when you're doing something really well, and I might be good at an entrepreneur and solving problems and that sort of thing, but it's hard work. And she'd say that's living in your excellence. But when you're in your genius, you'll be doing something, and I'll be, you know, I've been on top of a mountain, the highest mountain in Europe at minus 30 degrees in screaming winds, filming stuff, having a blast, right? And and the time just flies when you've found your genius. So what do you do now? Help people understand. Um, you're, you have one of the more interesting... Uh, you found your genius in a place that's, that's uh, unusual. <clears throat> it is unusual. It's, uh, so I'm a full-time adventurer, which if you put that in a LinkedIn prompt, you don't get too many results <laughs> from that one. So, uh, and, and basically, I'm doing a lot of documentaries and a lot of public speaking to inspire people to, to find their adventure within, to find their genius and, and helping people get there because everybody has a genius. Not everybody has the courage, and I certainly didn't for a long time, 
not everybody has the courage to find their genius. So I'm, I'm helping people with that. All right, we're back with Patrick Sweeney. So one of the things that you've been really thoughtful about, and I know you're working on um, uh, actually a book about right now, is is people's relationship with fear yeah. um, and how that relationship needs to change in many ways to help them be successful. Um, what do you mean by that? So I think one thing that I've learned over this journey of mine is most people don't have a relationship with fear. And fear is without a doubt the most powerful force that we have access to that can change our life. And if you, if you look at any great leader, any great athlete, any great CEO, they all have an incredible relationship with fear. So instead of avoiding fear or reading a book about 12 steps to, to conquer your fear, you should really make friends with fear and, and, and you should really try and invite fear into your life. So this is something that I think about a lot. You know, I mentioned when we chatted before, you know, my, my, one of my kids, my second son, um, you know, he, he's sort of a wary kid. Like my, my youngest daughter is a daredevil. Um, <laughs> she would like be in the flying squirrel suit off the building. Like she's a, a maniac. That's my girl. <laughs> um, but my, my son is, I would, you know, I would say he's very smart. You know, yeah. he's more like me. Um, but, uh, but, you know, one of the things I'm trying to help him with is, is you know, I say sometimes, you know, it's okay to be uncomfortable, but you need to sort of get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, that's a um, great line. And yeah. that, that, that idea that, that sometimes, like, you know, that discomfort, you know, is neither good nor bad, but, but it's in the, in the way you respond to it that, that sort of shapes your life in some ways. Is it, is it similar, this idea with fear? And, and how, do, how do you think about that? So it's, it's, it's such a rich subject to talk about, Mike. That's a, that's a great line for your son, because one of the things that the first step to having a relationship with fear is you have to decide, you really only have two choices. Fear can tame you or you can tame fear. And you have to decide consciously what you're going to do. If you decide to tame fear and, and really take control over it, then you've got to experience it a lot to do it. It's just like building any other muscle out there. And there's two types of fear. There's, there's physical fear and then there's emotional fear. So fear of repelling off the side of a building. Your, your daughter might be great at that, and she might have that down. But there's also fear of rejection from the tribe, right? What happens if I get braces and every other kid's had, got their braces off now? Am I going to be ostracized? Sure. So getting comfortable with the feelings that come up when you, when you get scared is critical because you have to start to recognize those, and then you can start to use that as a source of strength. So uh, one of the things, a, a good friend of mine is a, um, a world champion rugby player. He was the captain of the South African team in 2007, John Smith, and uh, they won the world championships. And he's got this great saying. He said, all the new guys would come in and they're really scared because we're going into war. And they all had butterflies in their stomach. And, I, and I'd tell the new guys that everyone's got butterflies in their stomach. If we get in, flying in the right direction, then we'll be unstoppable. And they were. And it's a, it's a great line. So you have to get uncomfortable with fear. And one of the things today, Mike, in, that, that you definitely see is uh, these helicopter parents, or what I call bulldozer parents, because what they're really trying to do is make life as smooth as possible for yeah. their kids. So they're taking away the experience of learning fear. Yeah. What's that? The expression is, um, 
uh, prepare the child for the way. Not don't 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 try to prepare the way for the child. Yeah. And um, it's something all parents I think struggle with, but it does seem in this generation, just to sound like a curmudgeonly old man here, it does feel like for whatever reason, you know, our generation of parents has probably done more damage yeah. um, than, the, than those who preceded us. Is that just because you think we live in such a safe country and we've had this post-World War II kind of um, artificial world? Or what, 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 what do you, why you do know, you think that is? I, I struggle with it. My natural inclination is to blame the lawyers yeah. because <laughs> yeah. they're good to blame for everything. Yeah. I mean, we are an incredibly litigious society. Yeah. And now things are so safe, and people don't realize the ramifications of, of you know, screwing down everything on a playground so, you know, nothing moves so no one can fall off yeah. it, or taking away the rope in gym class, right. Right? It, right? I mean, all these little things add up to what cultures would call a rite of passage. Every culture has a rite of passage to go from a, from a, a child to an adult, and, and what we're trying to do is really take that away. I really feel that's why suicide rates and, and depression is so high in, in colleges these days, because people, people are told, you know, you get a trophy for 14th place, you think you're special no matter what, yeah. right? And they go to college yeah. and they learn they're not special, and it's not easy. There's another uh, quote, Lauren Michaels uh, was commenting on, on the crisis of men in the country, and he yeah. said that, uh, he said, you know, when we were kids, we were raised in the wild and released on civilization. Um, <laughs> that might be an we, exaggeration. We had to develop skills and like become social animals. You know, yeah. you know, we had to develop these whatever. But he's like, today's kids are raised in civilization and released into the wild. Yeah, and it's and it does not serve them well. Not at all. And I thought that was really, uh, you know, it, in in fact, if you're if you're starting a company and you're starting a company with with millennials, I would dig into that in the interview. So I used to spend a lot of time on our hiring process, and they'd have to do tests and homework studies and every homework uh, projects and everything else. I would find out what their rite of passage was. And the, one of the best ones I've ever heard is Richard Branson's mother, who would be arrested. She'd, st she'd still be doing time now yeah. if, she, if she was yeah. in the United States. He was seven years old. He was super shy. He was afraid to talk to people like strangers they're driving home from a um, you know shopping mall or something he's seven years old they're three miles from their house she kicks him out and this is before cell phones there's no subway that he can hop on and he has to go out ask the neighbors for directions walk home and he was crying the whole time but Branson credits that as his big rite of passage life-changing experience huh. and everyone has to have one of those interesting you know what's unusual about the view, though, is is the is this this focus on fear. Like some people, I've you know other people think about it in terms of risk, mm -hmm. right? A willingness to accept risk, and yes. and we've lost that risk taking sensibility. You know, partly because we're so litigious as a society, um, but like framing it in fear is you know at the end of the day, there is a moment when scared seven year old Richard Branson, you know, is faced with a choice about what to do in that moment. And the and and the defining thing he has to overcome is is this issue of fear. That's right. So when when people, you know, are in that right, fear is this biological response that we've evolved over you know centuries, mm -hmm. uh, millennia, yeah. uh, right? And it's it plays an important role in our ability to ascertain danger and take action. And um, it did play an important role, Mike. Right. Right. It did. 
I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah. And so I've, for the book, I've, I've interviewed dozens of uh, neuroscientists from Harvard and, and MIT, and I was just met with Dan Gilbert yesterday, who's, uh, who's pretty, uh, pretty famous for his book on happiness, um, Trinity over in Dublin, and, and I've learned so much about what happens. When you're born, the amygdala, which controls uh, the flight, fight, or freeze response, it also controls the other three Fs of pleasure, but we won't talk about that right now. It controls the <laughs> fight, flight, or freeze response. That is fully developed at birth. The prefrontal cortex, which is basically you can think of as your adult supervision, that doesn't develop fully until your mid-20s. So unless you have practice wiring the neurons in your brain together to say, hey, hold on a minute, because that thing in the grass isn't a snake. We shouldn't run screaming at the top of our lungs. That's just a hose that somebody left out. But your, your amygdala, that little part that belonged to a lizard 500,000 years right. ago, that's fully developed. That's saying that's a snake in the grass, run like hell. Right. The prefrontal cortex will say, wait a minute, and it, it comes afterwards. So the amygdala has a shortcut to your brain. It can take action before you even know what happened. That's why you jump when someone around a corner you know, yells, boo. Yeah. And so unless you practice wiring those two together and given the prefrontal cortex the ability to be rational and make decisions, then the fear center is going to own you. And, and in my case, when I saw a plane crash at six years old in Boston, that prefrontal cortex wasn't even close to develop. That fear center owned me for 30 years. Right. You know, your, your relationship to flight, I think, is really an interesting anecdote. It's one of the, when we were first getting to know each other years ago, you told me the story over dinner, and um, uh, it's just a fascinating story, and, it, and it, it sets up so much of what followed in your life. But tell people what happened, uh, what you saw on TV as a kid, and how it affected you. So I was, I was sitting there playing with my G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip, <laughs> and my dad had the, had the 6 o'clock news on, and this was uh, 1976, I think and on a grainy black and white RCA TV. And all of a sudden, he turns up the volume, and he yells at my brother and I to shut up. And I look over, and there's a remnants of a plane in flames at Logan Airport. And it was a Delta DC-9 that, that hit the seawall as, um, as it came in for an instrument approach in the fog. And so uh, I looked at it, and I realized what was going on. And at that point, the fear could have gone... And that memory could have gone in one of two places in my brain. So I saw the memory. Two weeks later, we were supposed to fly down to Georgia to my aunt and uncle's house because they had a litter of puppies and we were going to get a puppy. And, and so we were all excited to go down. And we packed up all our stuff, headed to Logan. I walked in to that smoky terminal because you could smoke inside sure. back then. Yeah. And I saw the tail of a Delta DC-9 through the glass. And it was like hitting an electric wall of fear. I had such a, a, a dramatic fear response. I started screaming and kicking, and I nearly drew blood, pulling my mom's hand to try and get her out of that situation. And I threw such an apoplectic fit, we got kicked out of Logan. And that took that memory from two weeks before, and it basically put it on the equivalent of my brain's hard drive. Right, right. And so that instilled, that planted that seed of fear, and that just started to grow. Right? So two things happened. One, I never rewired or reconditioned or, or extinguished that fear. So for 30 years, I was terrified to fly. And it was, it was tremendously 
embarrassing and debilitating, and I was ashamed of it because even as I started to get good enough to, to make the U.S. Nationals in rowing and the World Cup and everything else, I, I was terrified. Yeah, so you're driving to these meets? So, so yeah, we'd have a race in we'd have a race in Indianapolis, and I'd I'd drive to it instead of putting my boat yeah. on a trailer and taking a 45 minute flight. Sure, I'd, I'd drive for six or seven hours or eight hours or whatever, and and I wouldn't tell anyone why, right? And and I felt the shame inside, and so I started working with a psychologist at the Olympic Training Center, and we started to do visualization for races. And at one point, my coach said, "Look, you need to do this for flying." And you got to get yourself in a plane. So I finally got to the point where I approached, you know, my fear frontier, as I refer to it, and, and I was able to at least function. And then I got to the point where I realized that using that fear could be something tremendous, tremendous value to me. I didn't get there until my near-death experience. Because when I got leukemia, uh, my daughter was one-year-old and my wife was pregnant with our second. And I said, this is no example for my kids to, to be afraid to fly and, and something that I know is completely safe. I'm going to get my private pilot's license, even if I'm crying with every lesson. So I went and I, about four flights into it, I, w- I was absolutely in love with it. I had so much fun and I was so, I got so much fulfillment out of it. I got my instrument rating, I got my commercial rating, and now I compete uh, every summer in acrobatics. And, and it's, such, it's such a source of joy for me that was locked away for 30 years, all because of fear. There's so much in that. You know, some part of it is just you have to have the ability to overcome the, I, I like the idea of the fear frontier. That's a powerful thought. And you have to kind of just buckle up your chin strap and get through that to take whatever action is required to, you know, progr- make progress, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but particularly with flying, like, was it that, you know, a deeper understanding of kind of the physics of it and a mastery, you know, so much of flying for me is lack of control, like you're exactly. in the back seat. And yeah. um, how much of it was enabling a rational process for you to kind of understand what was going on and beat it back with your rational mind as opposed to, you know, the balls part of your lizard brain, you know, in a, in a, in a struggle with the, with the, you know, with the terror part. Yeah. Yeah. It's, in in retrospect and learning about the neuroscience behind it, um, it was the fact. So you've got you've got a hard drive that sits in your head, and that's where all memories live. Even memories that are instinctual, and even memories that your parents had, which is which is <laughs> completely fucked up. That I just found out within the past year, and this research hasn't even been studied yet or published yet in a peer review. But in one generation, you can change DNA for fear. So uh, some folks at MIT would play a sound, shock a mouse. And so they had an association, a conditioned association. When that sound was played, they they associated it with a a shock and they'd be terrified. The mice had babies. They took the babies and separated away from the parents, put them with normal mice. Then when they were mature, they played the sound. The offspring were terrified. Yeah. In in one generation. Yeah, this is in the, um, there's a book called The Gene. Okay. Um, and he talks about this phenomenon and the genetic basis for it, yep. uh, which, is, which is fascinating. But this is like cutting-edge stuff. And yeah. It, you know, what, what happens is you store memories basically in this hard drive. And when you get scared, you recall them and you bring them up to your RAM. That's the only time when you can extinguish that fear. So I was bringing them up, and what I was doing was reinforcing it. 
Every time I saw a plane, I'm like, got my ass if I'm getting on that thing, yeah. right? And I, so I kept making the slot on the hard drive deeper and deeper, and it got further entrenched. And so what I was doing was rationally, I, w- I was making it worse because, you know, I didn't have the balls to step up to the plate in the first time and say, okay, well, here's the rational side of my brain. I didn't have that connection between the, the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And the amazing thing is once I started to build that connection, I got, I got braver with everything. And now the stuff I do, you know, riding, first one to ride a bike on the seven summits is what, you know, my current project is. And, and go to the, you know, craziest places in the world and dive with sharks and do all this stuff. Like 15 years ago, I would have never, never thought in, in a million years I'd be able to do all this stuff. Yeah, I, I want to end with that because it's, there's no place to go. <laughs> can't really go back after you go there. No, you can't um, go back. So um, frame this up for current and aspiring entrepreneurs uh, in our audience. You know, what is the role of fear to an entrepreneur? Um, you know, to, to take the intersection of two parts of your life experience. Uh, how should an entrepreneur think about fear? Is it similar to the way they think about risk? Um, or or what, what's your advice for other entrepreneurs who want to get the benefit of your life lessons? I, I think there's two things, Mike, and you, bring, you touch on a great point of fear and risk. Risk should be mitigated, and, and that's a probability of an outcome based on statistical data. And you should mitigate as much risk as you can. And I do that when I start a company, and I always say, look, if you want something, get someone to give it to you for free. Don't spend any money on it. If you can get something for free, get someone to pay, it, pay you to take it away, right? <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's all about being an entrepreneur. And that's mitigating the risk. And the same with hiring decisions and that sort of thing. Fear is a fallacy when it comes to entrepreneurship. There is, there is never a bad time to start a company. And one of the things I do when I speak to MBA classes, I still sit on the board of Trinity College of the business school in Dublin. And so I speak to classes a lot over there. I'll ask kids who want to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, half of them raise their hand. A lot of them will have jobs going out of there. And I'll say, okay, write a letter dated a year from now, and it's your resignation letter. So we put a line in the sand. And everyone says, yeah, okay, sure, I'll do it. And I said, once you write the letter, make two copies and give one to me, because I'll mail it. <laughs> so that's the, you know, the, the time to do it is whenever you feel it is, because once you start your company, nothing ever goes as planned. Yeah. And so being comfortable with chaos, and like I said, understanding that the world is a very friendly place, and that every moment is a moment for you to learn, and every person was put here so you could learn. They're here just for you, just to serve you. And how much you take away from that, and you realize that life happens not to me, but life happens by me. And how I create this situation is all that determines your success. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating about this is that, that you've really, you know, put the theory to work. You know, you're living this. And, you know, this ability to overcome fear has led you to some life experiences that are really extraordinary. So, you know, what have you been up to lately So uh, the last project that's really noteworthy was climbing Europe's highest peak, which is Mount Elbrus in Russia, very close to the the volatile Georgian border and uh, um, in the middle of nowhere. And I took my 11-year-old son, who wanted to climb it with me, (laughs) who is my main climbing partner. We've done uh, about 15... 4,000-meter or 14,000-foot peaks together. Wow. And so uh, I was taking the bike up, and he wanted to climb up, so I hired a guide knowing I'd be a lot faster going down. 
and uh, got that summit. It's one of the seven summits, one of the highest peaks in each continent, and it's the highest one in Europe. And uh, we did a documentary, which is now in uh, a dozen or so film festivals this year, wait, applications waiting to get let in, and will be aired on a, a network uh, or a cable channel right before Father's Day. It's called From Russia With Love. So the documentary and the climb were great. And then I just got a call from the U.S. Special Forces uh, to take some of their guys up Kilimanjaro in June, which I think I'm going to do because of my experience with the diet that's called ketogenic diet and high altitude and extreme places. So if, if I ever thought 15 years ago that Navy SEALs were going to call me to, <laughs> to, to help take them on something or that I'd be taking an 11-year-old son up the highest peak in Europe, I couldn't possibly imagine. So believing the world's a very friendly place and making friends with fear and not being afraid to, to say, yeah, I'm the right guy for that and, and not being afraid of failure and, and embracing the, the fact that failure is going to happen and it's, uh, you know, it's all part of the journey, all part of the process. And I live in the most beautiful place in the world part-time. I live in Boston, the best sports town in the world part-time. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I just have an amazing life. For me, it's, it's the absolute perfect life. And I think the lesson is if the blue-collar kid from Boston, you know, can make this happen, anyone can do it. Right. Your genius and your happiness is just on the other side of that fear. Exactly. And you got to get over the mountain, you know. Got to get through that fear frontier. It's an old story. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Michael. It's great being here. All right, Patrick Sweeney, great guy to uh, hang out with if you want to feel like a fat, lazy loser. Even got a thick, full head of hair, that bastard. Uh, a fascinating person. If you want to learn more about Patrick, check out pjsweeney.com. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this book, and um, I had some reflection myself after this conversation, and uh, I hope you did as well. All right, so How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups. Backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Hey, thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next weekend.